as we get started this morning, I just want to ask a question. Why, why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? Why, um, why, wh- why do you pa- celebrate Palm Sunday? Uh, what do you maybe walk he- in with this morning by way of expectation? If someone asked you uh, this afternoon, you're eating lunch at Red Robin and you look dressed up. Where did you come from? Church is today a special day. Yeah, well, what's so special about it? You know, what's your answer to that question? Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? And I want to go back to the garden. I want to go back to creation and just maybe simply put this before us. When the Lord had made heavens and earth and water and animals and the plants and, and everything, and he rested and he, and he looks out everything and he, at everything and just says, this is good. Sometimes we think that he said this is good and then he kind of checked out and it's been bad ever since. And and so I would just say that he said this is good, and he has never stopped trying to bring about his good for his people. And so even though his people, even though we have been, we have wavered, he has been unwavering to us. And and maybe we don't see it anywhere clearer than at, at this moment of Jesus' triumphal entry, what we celebrate Palm Sunday, where Jesus, rather than avoiding conflict, Jesus rides a donkey and descends into Jerusalem right in the midst of conflict. Jesus doesn't avoid what is difficult. Jesus doesn't do uh, what was easiest for him. He does what is best for us. And so I want to maybe even pause, and we're just going to start in Genesis and work our way through the Old Testament a little bit because I, I want to convey to you that I believe this is the active work of the Father is this calling all throughout the Old Testament, calling his people back to himself and revealing who he is. The entirety of the Old Testament, the Lord revealing who he is and calling his people back to himself. We think about Adam and Eve and we think about the garden. Imagine what it's like to be born without the predisposition to sin, with the ability to walk in the garden with the Lord, to enjoy him, to enjoy what he's made for them, and to enjoy what he's made them for. They never walked into church and said, okay, all right, stop arguing, uh, we're at church now. Never, never had to hide anything. There was never shame. There was never any guilt. Uh, there was never, I hope no one finds out what I've just done. No hiding, no shame. Fully known by God and fully loved uh, by God. And of course, many of you know that, that they're deceived. They believe the lie of the enemy, the lie of Satan, that God has something better for them and God's holding out on them. And so they rebel and they disobey and they fall and, and they're, they're cast out. And, and we know from the story of Noah that humanity just got progressively worse. And what does God do uh, with Noah? God comes in and says, I'm not going to let my creation destroy itself. I am not going to let my creation ruin itself even though that's what it deserves. Have you ever looked at anyone and said, serves them right? I mean, we haven't, but you've probably heard someone else look at a child and say, serves them right. Isn't it great that the Lord doesn't look at us and say, serves them right? God doesn't quit on his people. He continually calls his people back into his presence. And when we see, we see the Lord reset things with the flood and with Noah. For a time, his people are led by prophets and judges, instruments of his mercy and instruments of his judgment when they need to be corrected. But do they like that? No, they want a king. Big, strong, tall 
king, just like everyone else has. We just want what everyone else has. That's not too much to ask, is it? Right? They reject him and they want a king. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord obliges. After 40 years of a very failed kingship with Saul, what do we see from him again? That he doesn't quit on his people and he establishes David as a king who he's going to use to bless his people, protect his people, and to call his people back into relationship with him. And we're going to even see that as David brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the people, the presence of God, back into its proper place of worship. For a while, David will rule. Uh, The whole kingdom thing is not going to work out well. It doesn't take too long after David's death for it to kind of fall apart. And the nation of Israel is divided in two, the north and the south, both wicked. The north is going to be essentially dissolved into Assyria, conquered and, and dissolved, and the south is going to last a little bit longer. And we've got all of these great prophets in the Old Testament that the Lord uses to say, refocus, 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 come back to me. But it's just a shadow of what it once was, right? They rebuild a little bit of the temple, a little bit of the walls. It's just a shadow. It's just a fraction of what it once was. And so David's kingdom ended in about 970. And Jesus is going to enter not quite a thousand years later. Can you imagine what it's like for these people who have waited almost a thousand years and things have not materialized with God like they hoped? Okay? They hope for land. They want their land back. They want to restore their land. They want their culture. They want their, their religious culture, their national culture, their economic independence. They want all of this back. They, they want their land. They want their autonomy. They want their independence. And it is not working out like they had hoped. What do we do? What do you do when things don't work out like you had hoped? with the Lord. We just had our kids in here. It's kind of easy to pick on them. <laughs> but if you go to, go to Fred Meyer and you walk into the grocery store, you're going to probably see some kid who wants a Snicker bar and a mom or dad who doesn't want to give that son or daughter the Snicker bar, and they're going to be negotiating. And the child is going to be saying, I'll clean my room. I'll go to bed early. What do you want me to do? I will move heaven and earth if you give me this Snicker bar. It's a trap. The child won't actually do any of those things, but it makes sense in the moment, right? They negotiate. When they don't get what they want, negotiate. You might see a kid laying on the floor in the candy aisle at Fred Meyer. That's not uncommon. Don't assume something terrible has happened. Probably said, mom or dad said no to that snicker bar. Negotiate. We try to manipulate God to get what we want. We throw temper tantrums, throw ourselves down on the floor at the grocery store. Uh, Sometimes you'll see a kid trailing mom or dad by 20 yards, moving slower than you have ever thought a human being could move, and they're moping, right? They're pouting. What do we do when we don't get what we want from God, when we think he ought to do something and he doesn't do it, when we're disappointed with how things have worked out with us and him and us and and life? Are we different? Are we much different uh, than our kids? Not just that. The people have been waiting a long time. People have been waiting a really long time, and things don't get better. Things get worse. Uh, About 60 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, Rome under Pompey, uh, 
ends the independent Jewish state. And so they just lose, they're just losing more and more rights and privileges and autonomy and independence. Things are getting worse, not better. Has anyone ever been there? Things are getting worse, not better. We know what they want from God, right? They want the works. They want their land back. They want their sovereignty back. They want, they want everything back. What do we want from God? On Palm Sunday, what do we want from God? Some of us kind of wish uh, or act as if God is a genie and he's going to grant us our three wishes and he's good. So he has to allow the first one to be unlimited wishes because he's good. How could he say no to that obvious uh, request? We want him to give us everything that we want, want for ourselves, want for our kids, want for family members. Some of us kind of want him to be like a flotation device, like a life jacket, right? It's a little bit irritating to wear, but it doesn't totally get in your way, but it does keep you from drowning, right? It does keep you from drowning. A lot of us want the Lord to to be that flotation device. Kind of get out of our way. Don't be too cumbersome. But if I get in over my head, I'll call. You keep me from drowning. These people have waited a long time. And and in our passage this morning in Matthew 21, uh, if you have your Bibles open there, we're walking right into Passover, okay? Enter Jesus' birth almost a thousand years of waiting, entered Jesus' birth. God the Father again is pursuing his people. God the Father again is inviting them into his presence, and this time he's doing it through the Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, calling them back into his presence. And it's April. It, uh, the month is Nisan. Um, the people are getting ready to celebrate Passover. Some of you remember that Passover uh, comes out of Egypt. Uh, comes out of the book of Exodus, right? When God passed over, showed mercy to his people and judgment on Pharaoh and judgment on the Egyptians. In other words, God says to his people, I am more powerful than your enemies. I am more powerful than their God. I am more powerful than your oppressors. But the people are coming and celebrating in Jerusalem, very aware that Rome is still their present and current oppressor. What's it like to celebrate God's faithfulness and his Uh, saving power over our enemies and then to know that so much of what you hope for has not come to fruition. Maybe you feel like you've failed. Maybe you feel like God has failed. Either way, they're broken and they can't fix it. Whether they've failed or God's failed, either way, something's broken and they can't fix it. And in comes Jesus. Uh, Let's read the first 11 verses of Matthew 21. I want you to see that Jesus arrives on the scene. He's going to say, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one. It's me. And you can trust me. I'm the one. You can trust me. In spite of where you've been, in spite of where you're at right now, in spite of what you see around you, you can trust me. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. It says this. Now, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought 
the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus approaches. He's coming. He's kind of traveled through Jericho. So he's moving, uh, I think, west to east into Jerusalem. He's coming to come down over the Mount of Olives at the high point on this roughly 17-mile journey. It's like 2,600 feet. Settles in Bethany. He's in Bethany with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And so a whole bunch of people want to go see Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. And that's an interesting thing that you don't see every day. The religious leaders also want to go see Lazarus. They don't like Jesus. They think he's a religious cancer infecting their culture. And they want to get rid of Lazarus because on account of Lazarus, clearly he's alive, many are following Jesus. And so there's all of this tension Jesus rides in on a donkey, takes a match, and throws it onto this big pile of kenneling uh, and gasoline, this big powder keg, and it just goes poof. And the people are stirred up. Who is this? What is he doing? What do we see from Jesus as he descends into Jerusalem? A couple things. Matthew 21 is just littered with Old Testament prophecy that Jesus fulfills to the T. And Matthew records a whole bunch of it so that we would understand who this is that is riding into town. Not a prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a miracle worker. Jesus, the Son of God, the one that they've been waiting for. The text uh, quotes Zechariah 9.9 when it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming righteous and having salvation he is humble and he is mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey that's a really specific prophecy and jesus comes into jerusalem riding on a donkey and matthew records the connection for us matthew also records what is said in psalms 118 where david is crying out to god god save us and then praising god god thank you for your delivering hand And they're the exact same words that Matthew records the crowds saying to Jesus as he descends into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Uh, From Psalms 118, this is David. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This Hosanna idea, this Lord save us idea. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed son of David from Psalms 118. Why does Matthew record this? Matthew wants us to know who we're looking at here. Matthew wants to make it crystal clear that Jesus is coming and he is saying, I am the one you have been waiting for. Trust me. I am the one you've been waiting for. Trust me. I think the trust me part is interesting Jesus gets his followers in what seems like a fairly simple, unimportant uh, command. He sends them ahead to 
get a donkey. And he's very specific, right? He tells them where to go. He tells them what they're going to find when they get there. He tells them that when they try to steal this animal, that someone's going to come out and say, what are you doing? Uh, You can practice that if you want. Get into a different car on your way out of here. Someone's going to say, what are you doing? And he says, when they do that, here's what you're to say, and they will allow you to go in peace. I don't know what those magic words are that allow you to get into someone's car on the way out of here today, and you'll be able to go in peace. But Jesus gives them those words to embolden them, to let them know that he has power over the future and that everything that's about to happen is under his sovereign control. Nothing is going to happen to him that he doesn't have the power to stop if he should so choose. We see something like this in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel has just anointed Saul, first king of Israel. Samuel talks to Saul and says, okay, Saul, I'm going to give you some very specific instructions, three specific things, that when these things happen, you will know that God is with you. He tells Saul in the first part of 1 Samuel 10, first, you're going to go and on your way, you're going to come across a couple of men that were looking for your animals. They're going to tell you that they found your animals. That's going to happen. He said the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to go stand by the oak of Tabor And when you're there, three men will come up to you and they're going to offer you food. Take the food. That's always a good rule, by the way. Take the food. After that, you're going to go into town and prophets are going to come out and they're going to begin to prophesy for you. And he says, this is going to be interesting. The Holy Spirit is going to come over you and you are going to prophesy also. And when these things happen, verse 7 says, know that God is with you. Why does God give Samuel this message for Saul? To embolden Saul for the difficult task at hand, to embolden Saul for the difficult task at hand, not to make Saul strong, to make Saul powerful, but so that Saul will know that he has a strong and powerful God who goes before him. And we see Jesus give his disciples very specific instructions. He's going to do the same thing when they prepare for Passover uh, at the end of the week to embolden them for the difficult task ahead, to put an exclamation mark on him saying, I'm the one, it's me. Follow me, you can trust me. It's interesting because we know that, uh, we know the people aren't going to get it, right? We know that by the end of the week, they're going to want to kill him. And and it's just fascinating that they are so preoccupied with what they want from him that they entirely miss what he wants for them. They're so preoccupied with what they want from him that they completely miss what he wants for them. And so there's this, there's this thing when we follow the Lord where God rarely gives us more than what we need for a day, more than what we need for a moment, because he's not just providing for needs, he's calling us into relationship with him. And one of the ways that he does that is by a need surfacing and he showing him showing himself as the provider. Remember the manna thing in the Old Testament? People are wandering in the wilderness. God says, go this way. They're like, where? We've been going for years. This is nuts. And food shows up on the ground. How much food? What are the special instructions? Pick enough for today. What happens if they pick for more than a day? It gets all gross and moldy and and wormy. Why? Because God's going to be faithful tomorrow. Just pick up what you need today. I know that you see a lot and you want to grab it all and and hoard it and store it just in case, in case there's another snowstorm. 
He says, just take what you need for today. I will be faithful for your tomorrow. Part of trusting the Lord is taking our tomorrows and laying them at his feet. And we can do that when we understand that he has power over our tomorrows and that he has a pattern of pursuing his people. That he is faithful even when we are not. Uh, Let's pick back up uh, the rest of Matthew 21. We'll read uh, verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and the nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Jesus, again, in verses 12 through 17, is going to say, I'm the one. I'm the one that you're waiting for. Trust me, and I am worthy of your worship. I am worthy of all praise. How do we know that he's continuing to say, I'm the one you're waiting for? Matthew continues to record more fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah 14 talks about uh, the... Uh, buyers and the sellers being driven out of the temple. Uh, Isaiah 56 is a really uh, neat verse that that quotes where he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, which you see and hear from Jesus in, in our text in Matthew 21. One of the things that I love about the Isaiah 56 passage is the context is the house of God being a place for prayer, a place for worship, for all peoples, not just the Jews, for all peoples. And so as Jesus is coming into town, as the city is in an uproar, the religious leaders may think he's going to come in and, and chum it up in the temple and high-five them and commend them for the great job that they're doing. Instead, Jesus dismisses them and goes straight to the sick and the needy. These are the deplorables of the first century, and those are the people that Jesus goes to. Uh, let me read Isaiah 56. I just want you to see that the tie-in from Isaiah 56 and Matthew 21 uh, speaks to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, but also to his purpose, also to his value, because we don't see Jesus come in and stir things up with Caesar, stir things up with Rome, uh, condemn taxes. Uh, He doesn't try to right the economic situation. He doesn't try to right the political uh, culture. He cares about his people's hearts and the authenticity of of their worship. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 uh, starts this idea um, that this place of worship is for far more than just the Jews. And the foreigners, verse 6 of 56 says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him 
to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. For all peoples. You see that Jesus is primarily concerned with the hearts of his people. He's primarily concerned with inviting people back to live and to worship in the presence of the Father. Do you see how he sets aside the things that they think they want for him to do something so much greater than what they're asking of him? How many of you know that so often in our lives, the plans that God has for us are bigger grander, more significant than the things that we ask him for and the things that we uh, beg him for, that he often has a bigger picture in mind than what we can see. And so Jesus comes in and rather than gravitating towards these religious elite, uh, these these individuals who kind of think that they've got everything figured out, kind of don't think that they need help, they really get what's going on, uh, they really are righteous, uh, just look at my life, Jesus, we're just so righteous. They think everyone else uh, has a problem, everyone else has a need, everyone else uh, is sick, but, but they're the healthy ones spiritually. They've, they've got it down. And Jesus just sets them aside and says, you completely missed it. And he casts out uh, the money changers. And uh, some of you know that people are just traveling from all over the region to Jerusalem. And so when they get there to offer sacrifices, uh, they've got to change with currency depending on where they came from. They've got to use money that's clean in, that, um, uh, in the temple. Uh, they've got to get animals. If they came from somewhere that was too far, they didn't bring their, their pigeons or bring their animals with them, and so they, they would buy them there. Uh, the pigeons are like a poor man's offering. Um, and so all of this is happening in the place that is reserved for worship. In the place that was reserved for worship, they are going about the business of buying and selling and have missed the point of what the place was for and who it was for. And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. And then who does he, who does he gravitate towards? I mean, we've, we've already seen that the Father is constantly pursuing us, calling us back into right relationship. You see Jesus say, it's me, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Trust me. Look around. Trust me. All of this is happening within the scope of my power. Who's invited to the party? Jesus goes to the sick and to the lame. The hopeless, the hapless, the ones who know they have need of a Savior. The ones who who don't run away from him because of their sickness and disease. They run to him. They don't try to clean themselves up and then come to Jesus. They come to Jesus knowing that Jesus can make them clean. And isn't that a neat picture of life with God where following Jesus is not something where the Bible says, clean yourself up, get it together, get dressed, make sure your shirt's pressed and your collar's done, and then come to Jesus. Let's come to Jesus and he'll take care of the rest. It's this come as you are by the grace of God, but by the grace of God, we don't have to stay where we are. And so Jesus has the children in the temple. That shouldn't have happened. These sick, the deplorables in the temple, that shouldn't have happened. 
but they knew that Jesus would welcome them. Do you know that regardless of your past, regardless of where you've been, regardless of the sin that is in your life right now, that Jesus welcomes all who call upon the name of the Lord, that Jesus welcomes all of us when we run to him, not from him. Do you know that we have one who is closer than a brother, who will never leave us or never forsake us? Do you see from his pattern in Scripture that he is calling to us, to welcome us back into our pre- his presence? It's the enemy that says we don't belong. It's the enemy that says we're no good. It's the enemy that says we're like a cat and we've used our nine lives and there's nothing left and the Lord has given up on us. Do you see him giving up on anyone? He picks David for his king. There's got to be a lot of better choices he could have made for his king. Uh, he picks massively flawed people to do his extraordinary work. It is the pattern of God from cover to cover uh, in the Bible because it's not about us and it's not about our power and it's not our, about our ability to clean ourselves up and then present to him something that looks attractive. We can't. We are the sick. We are the deplorables. We are the lame. We are the blind. And so our posture in worship is that we are the sick and the blind and the lame, that we are the deplorables, but we are welcomed in his presence because of his great love for us. And so Jesus comes into town and he says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Lights the match, throws it into the fire. He says, you can trust me. I know it's been a long time. Uh, For some of you, a lot has happened. There's a lot of water under the spiritual bridge so to speak. A lot of things have not worked out like you had hoped with the Lord or you had hoped in life. Maybe you're approaching retirement and you don't have the slightest clue what you're going to do. Financially, with life, with relationships, you thought you'd have it figured out by now and you don't. Uh, Maybe you're a younger person and and you're just setting out in life. Maybe starting a family. Maybe kids are getting older. Maybe you, you wish you were there and you look forward to the future and you think, I thought I'd have it figured out by now. And I don't things actually seem to be getting worse, not better. And the invitation to all of us is that the posture of our Father is to call us back into His presence, that we can trust Him with our tomorrows because He has power over our tomorrows and a pattern of faithfulness and that we are all called, all welcomed, all invited, all pursued to come and to live in His presence. Like the garden, no guilt, Uh, No shame, uh, not this constant sense of hiding, of masking, of coping, of trying to deny or pretend we're something other than what we actually are. We are invited into the presence of God, and we have wavered and wavered and wavered, and we see here that Jesus is unwavering in his faithfulness to us as he descends into Jerusalem, able at any moment to stop what is happening. But he says, all of this, is by the Father's design. All of this I have power over to stop at any moment. Uh, In Mark, our earliest account of Jesus' triumphal entry, or maybe it's Luke, uh, the religious leaders say something similar to what they did here in Matthew to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, aren't you going to tell these people to stop saying these things about you? And in a passage we read today in Matthew, Jesus says, Uh, Even the children will cry out. And in Luke, he says, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. If they're silent, I can make these old red chairs cry out. Like, God's going to get his glory. 
He's worthy of praise whether we offer it or not. He's going to be praised at the end whether we offer it or not, but we have the invitation to participate as sons and daughters of the king with all the rights and the privileges. So if you're here today and you relate to the Israelites, it resonates with you, this long period of time where you've waited and expected things from God and it hasn't materialized, you can trust him with your tomorrows. you identify with the sick and the lame and the blind you see in the text that that's what jesus goes to you see in the text that those are the people who run to him in their frailty they understand that they need help and he's ready and welcoming of all jesus comes into town jesus says i'm the one you're waiting for trust me he says everyone is invited to the party he's going to get the praise whether we offer it or not but the invitation for us is to participate, to be a part of it. Some of you um, would say that uh, you've been set free uh, and you have these sweet moments with the Lord. Some of you would say, I have no idea what it means to be set free. I I really feel more ensnared than anything, more uh, entrenched, trapped, uh, guilt and shame free from that. No idea what, what that could mean. Would you consider that maybe today on Palm Sunday, maybe this week as we lead up to Good Friday, we we lead up to Easter, that this might be the week where for the first time in your life you say yes to Jesus and say, all right, Jesus, if you're real, I want to follow you. Isaiah 56 says that if I follow you, that I get to be a a part of this thing. Show me what that means. Uh, If that's you this morning, we'd love to share with you more from Scripture what that means to, to follow Jesus, to be set free. It's definitely not what the religious leaders had. It's definitely not what the religious leaders were doing. Um, they were stuck in this, uh, I'll just earn my way, or I, I can be so good that I will get God's favor. Some of you grew up in very legalistic uh, households. Some of you grew up in, in, in homes where uh, it didn't matter what was going on in your, in your heart and life. You just had to toe the company line, and, and that's all that matters. And, uh, you know, as a firstborn uh, pastor's kid, I feel like my predisposition is to lean that way. What are the rules? How do you play by them? All right, I'll beat you with the rules. I can do it. Um, that's how the religious leaders live. That's how the Pharisees live. That's a heavy, joyless, peaceless uh, way to live. You're constantly under the burden, under the weight of expectations. I, I don't know how many of you grew up uh, in church or how many of you grew up in a church where at the end there was uh, maybe what's called a sinner's prayer at the end of every service and uh, maybe someone uh, prayed that and people could pray if they wanted to, to follow Jesus. Um, I grew up in a, in a church like that, and man, I must have, must have prayed that prayer uh, 500 times. Because every time it was like, well, what if I did it wrong last time? What if I didn't totally understand it last time, but I understand it more this week than I did last week? So let's try it again, just to be sure. Uh, we have the opportunity, the invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be set free from trying to earn our way, set free from trying to work into his good graces. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, you don't get it. And he goes and he welcomes the deplorables. If you're here this morning and you more resonate with the deplorable, I think that means you're really close to the kingdom of God. If you're here and you resonate with the deplorable, I think that means uh, that you're on the path to finding Jesus, uh, that you're on the path to the throne, to his grace, to what we had in the garden uh, of no guilt, no shame. Because that's what it means to live in the presence of God. And we have the invitation uh, to participate in that. If you'd like to know more about what it means to to say yes to that invitation, please come forward at the end of the service. I have people up front who would love to to pray for you. Make this Palm Sunday uh, a
Palm Sunday to never forget. I'm going to invite the worship team up, uh, and they're going to lead us in a closing song of worship, Amazing Grace. The song says, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Uh, As you sing that song, if you're someone who's been set free, sing that with enthusiasm and with joy at what has been uh, done for you. Uh, We'll have some ushers up front as well. They'll be passing out the offering bags. Put your communication cards in there if you have them. It's just a way for us to be family together, to communicate, and to be prayerfully involved with what's going on in the family at Roseburg Alliance Church. Would you join me and pray as they come forward? Lord, we, we just want to come before you and we want to confess that uh, we tend to be a lot more like the Israelites than, than we, we care to admit. Uh, Lord, there's things that we have asked of you that we, you, we think you ought to do that you haven't done. And we uh, just don't even have the slightest sense that what you're doing might be bigger than what we've asked for. And so uh, we pout. Uh, we throw temper tantrums, Lord. We try to negotiate. We try to manipulate uh, good from you. And so we, we just want to come humbly as the blind, as the lame, uh, as the children, uh, as the deplorables of the first century, with a big smile on our face, not because of where we've been, but because of the future that we have in you. Not because of our power to clean up our life, but because you make all things new. Lord, we're going to hear the lie of the enemy this week, that we don't measure up, that we are not good enough, that we have no part in your work, that you couldn't possibly want anything to do with us. I pray that as those lies surface, we would be brought back over and over and over to the pattern of the Father from cover to cover in the Bible to relentlessly pursue your people to invite them back into your presence. Lord, that all are welcome. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.